things are changing. You know, uh, today the, the, the title of the message is going to be Stand Firm. And it's going to focus on a, a primarily a phrase in the middle of kind of Paul's conclusion there uh, in verse 12. It's at the end of verse 12, but in the middle of that section where he says, Stand Firm in it. And he's calling us to stand firm in the grace of God that he has expressed to us throughout this letter. Now, we are in a time and that it's going to require many of us a lot of times to, to choose to stand, okay? Every single one of you probably at some point in your life has already come to a place where you doubted, you've struggled, you've gone through difficulty, you face painful circumstances. I, I believe it was the last Sunday afternoon, I was with one of you, and I won't call names, but it was with one of you when he got a phone call that a good friend of his had passed away in a tragic accident. And those kind of things rock your soul. Some of you have had to make the choice in recent years to stand firm, trust God when you faced horrible news maybe the loss of a loved one, or maybe news of your own health issues. And, and you really do have to make a choice because it's easy to give in to the fear and doubt and emotions of the moment. You, have to, you, you need to make a choice. In fact, I'd encourage you to make a choice up front that when tough times come, you're going to stand you're going to stand firm. And we're going to talk about standing firm in two things. You know, this week, just right now, uh, there's a large population in Iceland that's having to be uh, evacuated because uh, a volcano is about to go off. And you can, uh, we can't imagine that. We don't, here in Texas, we don't live in an area with a lot of uh, geological or seismic activity that's going on around you all the time. But, but imagine being there when the ground begins to shake knowing that there's a volcano outside your town that could go off and erupt any minute. So there's swarms of activity there and, and their, their world is about to change. The, the ground that they're standing on is no longer firm enough on which to stand, right? And, and sometimes we go through those times in life where it seems like what we have trusted, what we have known, even what we've believed or someone whom we've trusted and known and believed in is no longer trustworthy. And the ground, the basis upon which we trusted them is just eroded. And, and we cannot stand firm forever on a relationship with someone else. We can't stand firm forever on the things of this world because the material things of this world are degrading around us. Even this world itself, God says one of these days he's gonna bring it into. So what is it that we can stand on? Probably the better question is, who is it that we can stand on? Because there is one who is eternal and has shown himself to be trustworthy and gracious to us. And so as Peter comes to the end of his letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's going to encourage the church when they face difficulty, when they face painful times. And we're going to, we're going to back up one verse and read one verse that we ended with last week from verse nine in chapter five to pick up on another statement where he told us to stand firm. When we're under attack from the enemy or we've, we're struggling with our own 
temptation or their own sinful issues or the world around us is falling apart, we, we're at that point going to have to make a decision on whether or not we're going to stand or whether we're going to cave. Read with me 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 9, as I said. So we're just backing up one verse. I, I, when I do this, remember, this is a letter. He didn't write short sermons in here. We're preaching it one week at a time because y'all don't want me to preach Peter all in one Sunday. Okay? We'd have been here a long time. So as we work through this, remember it's a letter. And so what, what we're looking at today, the primary focus, verse 10 and following, is connected to the things going on before it. So verse 9, the scripture says, speaking of the devil, who is your enemy, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings as, done, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, before I get into the, the two main points of the message, let me do a little housekeeping here because this is uh, Paul's goodbye statement, so to speak. It's his uh, uh, signature. He's, he's not Paul's Peter. He's signing off. And so there's a, there's a little bit of a, a housekeeping that he does. For instance, in verse 12, he rides through Silvanus. Silvanus is also referred to as Silas. Uh, he is a, a fellow partner in the gospel who has, you see him mentioned a lot in Paul's letters. Here he is mentioned in, in 1 Peter. Apparently, Peter is dictating this letter to Silvanus. And so it's through Silvanus that, that Peter is having this letter dictated that's going to be sent to the church. There's a lot of question that comes up about uh, who is Babylon. It says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings. Without getting into all of the technical details and questions, the theological questions surrounding that, most believe that that is the church of Jesus in Rome. Uh, Babylon oftentimes was a, a name that was uh, used to, to refer as a pseudonym to other places. And Rome oftentimes in the Christian uh, writings was referred to as Babylon. And so... She who is in Babylon is most likely the church that is there together in Rome uh, because he says, chosen together with you sends greetings, as does my son Mark. Mark mentioned here is John Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, who was, we believe, a nephew of Peter. When you go back and you look at the gospels and you look at early on in the book of Acts, uh, so John Mark is a familiar character who's been around uh, from early on, even back in the gospels, uh, we believe that he was there. I believe he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't one of the disciples, but he was there the night that, that Jesus was arrested. And you see Mark, his story weave in and out throughout uh, the letter of Acts. You know, Peter's uh, history of the early church in Acts. You see Mark mentioned there. John Mark would have been uh, the young man who went on the first missionary journey with Barnabas and the apostle Paul. 
who bailed on them early on, made Paul mad. And then eventually uh, John Mark reconciled with Paul. And you see in Paul's late letters, him referencing Mark. And so that's that's who that character is. Peter refers to him as my son. Now, certainly Peter's referring to him as a son in the faith. Lastly, last little bit of bookkeeping that I want to do here is oftentimes when I preach, uh, I structure the sermon around two uh, the, the, the two primary, or I structure a sermon around any imperatives, any commands in that text, because that's, if they're commanding us to do something, that's a pretty good way to structure the sermon. And not always, but in this case, there's two commands in the text. The first command is to stand firm. The second command is to greet one another with a kiss of love. I thought about bringing James and, and uh, Tommy into this, but we're gonna leave them out today. Uh, no, we're not. Those are the two commands that that were given here. We're going to get to a little bit of a focus on that in a moment. The, the, that kiss of love is the phrase that Peter uses. Paul refers to something very similar in four of his letters, uh, toward the end of those letters, but he refers to it as a holy kiss. It's really a cultural welcome. Uh, among church members that indicates their affection, their love for one another. Uh, There's no difference between Paul's holy kiss, what he describes as a holy kiss, and what Peter describes as a kiss of love. So there's your bookkeeping uh, for today. I want to dig into the primary focus of this text because what I see here is the primary command that you and I need to focus on is this idea that we're going to stand firm. Now, in 1 Peter, one of the struggles I've had preaching through Peter is Everything in First Peter come, seems to come back to trials and suffering, difficulty, pain, trials, suffering. We're all going to go through it. He, he tells us early on to embrace the various trials and temptations that come our way because God's going to use those to purify our faith, to mold us and to shape us. He tells us to submit uh, to the government, even when we go through trials and suffering. He tells us to follow Jesus as our example who submitted through suffering. And even when we come here uh, to this part of the passage, when he says, the grace, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself do all these good things for you after you've suffered a little while. And so it, it just seems like Peter's always talking about suffering and trials and difficulty. There's a reason for that. In fact, I'm going to give you a couple reasons. One reason is the early church whom he's writing to is facing extreme difficult challenges. He's, they are facing real persecution, real suffering. People are dying for their faith, okay? But second, suffering and trials are a part of the human condition that's been interjected in our world because of sin. My guess is on some level, some of you, every one of you on some level face some type of trial or difficulty or painful circumstance just this week. I know when I, this morning, when, when a couple of the church members walked in, their heads were down, they had this grievous look on their face and and uh, the lady said, I know it's going to be all right, uh, e- even though they lost last night. Well, she's a huge TCU fan. I, you know, I joke about that, but sometimes we get emotionally invested in things like, like that that can bring us down. 
I was in a cranky mood last night because the one deer that I've hunted for a year and a half ran off on me before I could get a shot. Now, I, I think about that and I, and I tell myself, you're an idiot, Dennis. That's not a, I mean, that's, that's not a big issue. That, that, that's, that's not real suffering. But emotionally, we can, we can struggle and we can go through difficult times when the world doesn't live up to our expectations. The circumstances of life don't live up to our expectations. Those are tiny things. Once again, I sat down uh, yesterday afternoon for a while and visited with uh, one of the hunters whose wife was diagnosed with stage four cancer this summer and they're in their upper 40s. Some of y'all face that too with friends and neighbors and loved ones. Suffering, struggles, difficulty, challenges are a part of the human condition. Even when we go through the most joyful times of life, those joyful times oftentimes are connected through struggles, through difficulty. When Susan was carrying Katie, in fact, all three of her daughters, but especially Katie for the first time, we were filled with joy that we were going to have a baby. But she threw up for the first four months. And she didn't just have morning sickness. She had morning sickness, afternoon sickness, and evening sickness. And so connected to the joy of life was still suffering and difficulty. And so my, my point is here that as Peter writes this, he understands that we as humans, because the world we live in will struggle and face sufferings. We, we're gonna go through rough times. And so instead of backing away from it and trying to paint some picture, you know, rosy picture, where we're, so the church can just say, oh, if I just come to Jesus, only good things are gonna happen to me. Instead of doing that, he just tells the truth. And he says, you're gonna go through rough times so make a decision up front on what you're going to do. How are you going to handle those challenges? How are you going to handle those difficulties? So the first one is stand firm in your faith. And that's why I backed up to verse nine, because when he's in the context of him speaking about the, the, your adversary, the devil's prowling around, he's looking for somebody to destroy. He's looking for someone to, to tempt. He's looking for someone to harm. And, and we have an enemy who is seeking to do damage and he says, resist him, but how do you resist him? Firm in the faith. You're gonna make a decision that I'm gonna stand firm in my faith. I'm gonna believe in the God who loves me and the God who died for me, and the God who is big enough and powerful enough to take care of me. So I'm gonna have to make a decision and faith really is about a decision. Faith is, am I gonna trust God's word? Am I going to trust the God of his word? Am I going to trust the God of grace? Am I going to trust him or am I going to trust what this world tells me? Am I going to trust what my emotions tell me? See, it's not just a battle of intellect or a battle of philosophies or religions, it's not just making a choice between should I follow Christ and Christianity or should I follow Buddha or should I accept the idea that there is no God that this world's pushing on us now. There's an intellectual argument there where I have to make a decision that I'm gonna stand firm in my faith. But there's also an emotional decision that we make because there's times when we don't feel God's presence or we don't see God in our lives. And, and we have to make a decision. Am I gonna believe that 
that there is a God who loves me and is big enough to care for me, even though I can't see him or feel him today. And, and that, that's part of what it means to stand firm in your faith. I'm gonna make a decision to follow his word, even when I don't understand it, even when I don't feel it, or it doesn't look like he's around, I'm gonna trust him anyway. And you know what? We are very fickle. And you don't have to go any further than, than just the story of God's own people to understand that. And we question this. How is it that the Israelites could see God deliver them from the Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea, drying it up so they could walk across it and then allowing the, the, the walls of water to come back down on top of the Egyptian army and crush them and drown them all so that they could escape and then a few days later, they're crying in the desert, wanting to go back to slavery because they don't have any water. The God who delivered them through the Red Sea could provide what they needed while they were in the desert. But how many times do we see God do a miracle in our life or do a miracle in the church? And we go, man, look at what God did. And we run up against the next obstacle and we allow our emotions to get the best of it. Well, let me even say this. We allow our reason to get the red. We'll look at it and we'll go, well, this doesn't compute. We can't afford that. God may be calling us to it, but we can't afford it. Are we gonna trust God and his word and his promises? Or are we gonna trust our hearts? I'll tell you, your heart will lead you astray because your heart can be deceitful. So you have to make a decision to stand firm in your faith. When you make that decision, there's a promise that he gives us here that comes from the God of all grace. And we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about this idea that not only is God big enough, but God loves enough. Now I'm gonna spend more time talking about the idea of grace on the next point. I'm gonna set that aside for a minute. But the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ so Peter gives us a foundation upon which to, to put this trust as well. The God who sent his son to die for you and to call you into a relationship with him that you're gonna have eternal life, an eternal glorious existence with him. That God is the one whom you can trust, that you can make a decision, I'm gonna stand firm in my faith the God who, is, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will do four things. He will, perf he, he will first restore you. Another word that's used in, in uh, the NIV here is the word perfect you. The idea is that God will begin to do a work in you to change you. When you trust him and you walk in your faith, he will bring to completion what he started when he saved your soul. He's gonna begin working to perfect you. Now, do I think that I'm ever gonna reach that point of perfection in this life? Probably not. My prayer is that I get closer as I walk with him and every trial as my faith is perfected by trials and tribulation, that I'm purified and that I grow closer to him and he makes me more the person he wants me to be, but he will restore you. Second, he will establish you. That idea of establish here is to firm up your faith. 
So as you go through trial, he purifies you and he establishes you and then he strengthens you. You gain power. And in these images, as I've read through these four things, I just continue to go back to the image of First Peter chapter one, when he was talking about how God puts us through the fire so that we become a more usable tool in his hand. Because when we're put to the fire and the impurities are burned out, we're perfected. When we're put to the fire, we are strengthened and established to become what we're intended to be. And then finally, he settles it. He consolidates all of that work that he's done in our life. And, and you see it here, he supports you. He, he will restore, establish, strengthen, and, and support you. He brings it all together. In fact, the word that's used that's translated here uh, to support you is a word that means to lay a foundation, like to, to, to take everything and finally put it all together so that there's one solid structure that stands there. So you have a, you have a God, when you, when you trust him through the difficult times and you, make, you decide you're gonna stand in your faith, he then does the work to restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. Now, Peter includes that, that adverb there, after, or that adverbial phrase, after you have suffered for a little while. It is through our suffering and through our challenges in life that God does all of this, and he then establishes us as he molds us and shapes us to be the person we want us to be, that he wants us to be. But there's a decision, there's a, there's a choice that you're gonna have to make, and that's which foundation you're gonna stand on. Are you gonna choose to trust Christ through these circumstances? Or are you gonna continually be swayed by what this world says? Or are you gonna put your trust in your emotions? Let me assure you, you, every one of us, you're gonna face painful times. Right? Most of you know that because you're old enough that you faced them. You know, when I was younger, I didn't necessarily see it as clearly as I did till Katie was born. We're gonna go through tough times. How we choose, whether or not we choose to trust God in those tough times and stand firm in our faith is gonna make a huge difference on how we come out the other side. You can, you can run from God or you can run to God. You can trust him or you can get mad at him. You can abandon him. But if you choose to stand firm in your faith, you're gonna see him do a work in you. Jesus spoke of it this way. He said, in, back in Matthew chapter seven, that we're gonna face difficulty. And, and when the storms come, you're either gonna have your house built upon a rock or built upon the sand. And he said, if you believe what I've been teaching you, it's gonna, you'll be like the man who built his house upon a rock. And the storms come and the rains fell and the winds blew, but that house stood. Those who built their house, who chose to live their lives based on Christ, will stand those tests of time. One of the authors that I was reading this week, he said, our Lord desires to use our brief times of suffering to consolidate all the fragments of our lives 
and to bring them under his control in order to lay a solid foundation in our lives. Jesus Christ himself will settle us from all of our instability. God will use the difficulty in our life to bring together all of the fragments to help lay that foundation that our life will be built on Christ when we choose to stand firm in our faith. The second stance that he's asking us to make here is what you see there at the end of verse 11. Stand firm in his grace. Stand firm in our faith, the faith that we've put in Christ, that we've made this decision that that Christ is Lord and we're gonna follow him. And now Peter says down in verse 11, stand firm in the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? The grace of God is that undeserved gift or favor that he's extended to us through his son, Jesus. God made a decision that because of he lo- because he loves us, he sent his son, not just to be our teacher, but to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice, to be our redeemer. And, and that act of grace, as God extended that gift to us, is irrevocable. God is, has offered us an incredible gift. You see that the phrase, the grace of God, uh, 14 times in the New Testament. I'm gonna give you a couple. In, in Titus chapter two, verse 11, Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Well, the first thing that I want you to understand about that incredible gift of God is that gift of God's grace. The grace of God is an offer of eternal salvation that he has brought to every single person of God. It's an amazing grace, right? It's a gift. It's not, and and, and grace is something that, that you can't earn. See, you cannot be good enough to deserve what God is giving you in Christ. That's the very nature of grace. It is a gift of God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, so that there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's not of works, so that any man could boast about what we've received from God. It's not because I've been a good person. It's not because I've tried to be a good dad. It's not because I've given money to the church. It's not for any of those reasons. It's not because I've been nice. The grace of God is a gift that he has offered every single person as he extended his grace through the death of his son on the cross. In, in fact, he goes on, Paul says in Ephesians, I mean, sorry, in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, one of my favorite verses here, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. If there's any way that you could gain God's favor by obeying the law, by doing good deeds, by your own righteousness, then Jesus died for nothing. Dr. McGorman put it this way. He said, if you add anything to Christ, through through Christ's death on the cross, if you had anything, any stipulation to become a child of God to that, it's as though you're saying Jesus's death on the cross was necessary 
but not enough. If you add baptism, if you say someone has to put their faith in Christ and be baptized to be saved, then you, you've added something and you've said that Jesus's death was necessary, but not enough. God has offered us one gift. That gift of his son is his gift of grace. And he's offered that gift to every single one of us. And those who simply accept the gift, and let me, there, there's an argument that I hear people get into on this, that when you accept a gift, to, to say someone has to accept the gift, that, that that's adding something to God's grace. No, it's not. There, there's still nothing you could do about it. It's still God's gift. All you're doing is receiving that gift. But if you look God in the face and say, I want your gift, he'll say, okay. Okay, he's not gonna force it on you. God's, the, the, he's the God of all grace who has offered us an incredible, amazing gift. And one of the problems that we have as Christians is we accept that gift of grace and we're born again. And then somehow we fail to stand in his grace. We move on from there and we begin to think that we need more or as we grow in our faith, somehow now it's up to us. Peter's command to stand firm in the grace of God is a reminder that it is not about us. It's about Christ. Okay, let me explain a little bit further. That means our salvation is not about us. It's about Christ. And most every Baptist who's worth his salt will agree with that statement. Our salvation is not about us. Your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is about the grace of God. And you, the only hope you have is God's grace and you receiving that incredible gift of God's grace. But then what happens is we tend to move from there and we think, okay, now that God has saved me, I, I've gotta learn more, I've gotta grow more, I've gotta try harder, I've gotta do this, I've gotta do that. And ultimately, we make the Christian life from here on out about my ability to come through for God. You know what Paul told the Galatians in the very next few verses about that issue? He said, you're fools. It could be translated idiots. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you one question, it's a rhetorical question. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Well, those Galatians would probably have been like most good Baptists. Well, it wasn't through our, our, the works of the law, it was through what we heard. We heard about Jesus' death and we, we put our faith in Jesus' death and that's how we receive the spirit of Christ. We're born again through God's grace. And then Paul goes on to say, are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit that you're now gonna be finished by the flesh? Are you so much of a knucklehead that you, you could not save yourself 
So you knew that you had to trust God to save you, but now you're gonna, from this day forward, you're gonna live the Christian life in your own strength and power. You can't do it. The only hope you have to live out the life that God desires you to live out is by faith. So you have to stand in his grace for your salvation, but you also have to stand in his grace for the rest of your life here. Your life is not about you. Your life is about God and his grace. We have eternity because he offered us a gift of grace, but we have today and tomorrow and the next day as an extension of his gift of grace. If you think that you can live the Christian life in a way that honors God in your own strength, Paul would say, you're a fool. He goes on later in, in Galatians to, to list out the fruit of the Spirit. And, and some of them make all the sense in the world, but we still have a hard time with them. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's not something I can work up, but the God's kind of love is something that his Spirit can produce through me. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's not up to me to walk around joyous all the time. In fact, sometimes I'm not gonna be happy, but I can have an inner joy that overwhelms my spirit when I'm connected to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is flowing through me. So the Spirit produces, a fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness. But hear this, the last one in that list that gets forgotten is the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The fruit of the Spirit as self-discipline, depending on which translation you look at. Because here's where, it, here's where it makes sense. A lot of us think, well, if I'm just disciplined enough, if I'm just self-controlled enough, if I just do the right things, check the right boxes, then I'm the person God wants me to be. No, if you're connected to the spirit of the living God by faith and you stand in his grace, understanding that I can't, but he can. And with him and me, then I can. You get that? I can't live up to the full expectations of God. He can, he already did when he walked on this earth and he showed us how to do it. With his spirit in me, I become the person he wants me to be. Then it's not my works, my strength, my discipline that's doing it. It's Christ in me. So we stand firm in our faith in our, our choosing, our believing that it is Christ and Christ alone, and we stand firm in his grace, trusting in his gift so that he might live his life out through us. He is the God of all grace. And let me tell you, his grace is enough when you suffer, when you go through tough times, and everybody's around you and they encourage you and they're there for you for a while. When you find yourself in that place where you're alone, you've laid your head down and you're depressed and you're hurting, and you're missing your loved one and it's no one there but you and his spirit. If you'll trust his spirit, his grace is enough his grace is enough to carry you through the most difficult of times. 
when you sin, you can confess your sin and move on because his grace is enough to cover all your sin. I love that we, I love singing that third verse of it is well with my soul because my sin, though not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. His grace is enough to cover your sin. It's not an excuse to live in sin, but his grace is always enough to cover your sin. See, there's nothing, if it wasn't enough, you're hopeless because there's nothing you can do to cover your own sin. You need his grace and his grace is enough. It is sufficient when you suffer. It is sufficient when you sin and his grace is sufficient when you die. When you take your last breath on this earth, you can trust your soul into the hands of the God who sent his son to die for you and his grace is enough to carry you to the other side. His grace is enough. So stand firm in his grace. Don't trust your own strength. As soon as you start to stand firm in your ability, you will fall and you will fail. If you'll stand firm in the grace of God, trusting in his spirit to do his work in you and through you, you'll continue on a path of maturity and growth that you cannot sustain in your own strength. His grace is enough. Stand firm in your faith, stand firm in your grace. And then Peter's last word. Now, I, I told you I was gonna get back to this command. And, and I'm gonna reword it, recouch it in a way that, that it's easier for us to understand. Love each other. Stand firm in, the, in your faith. Stand firm in the grace of God and love one another. When Peter tells the church that as they gather together to greet one another with a kiss of love, what he's telling them is they come together in affection and support and encouragement for one another. When I was in India and in and, and South America in various cultures, a lot of times Christians will greet one another with that, that kiss on the cheek. And understanding the culture, you don't have to be afraid of it. It's not a weird sexual thing or anything like that. It's just simply a greeting, an expression of affection and love for brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? And the command here, the underlying golden nugget of this truth is he's, he's telling the church, he's commanding the church, when you come together, come together loving one another. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13? This is how the world will know that you're my disciples when you love one another. I'm afraid far too often the, the, the world looks at the church and they see us shooting our wounded. They see us arguing over philosophy and theology and arguing over, over whether the old hymns better, the new hymns are better, whatever. They, they see the church arguing over things that don't matter. And I love the way that Kirby approached that today. Look, he's old. And he's gonna, he, he, he's tried. He, he, he actually, when he was gonna lead worship for Matthew a while back, he said he, he tried to, to do some of the new stuff, but he basically, folks finally said, look, Kirby, that's not you. We want you to be you and lead worship as God's put you together and it'll be good for the church. And it was good for the church today. But we recognize it's not that the old is necessarily better. 
it, it, we, but churches will argue over that. They'll get in fights over that. They'll split over that kind of stuff. And when the world sees us acting like that, they don't want anything to do with us. So Jesus says that the world will know you're my disciples when you love one another. So Peter ends this by coming, coming to the end. And he says, okay, stand firm, but love each other. There's got to be a balance between standing on doctrine and loving one another, standing on your faith and standing in the grace of God and loving one another. What has to stand above all else, because the most important of all of that is love. So come together, greet one another in love. God's grace is expressed in our mutual love for one another, and then it is manifested in what Peter wishes for the church as he closes out the letter. God's grace is manifested in peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, Peter closes the letter with. If we'll come together, standing firm in our faith and standing firm in the grace of God, that grace will be expressed in our love toward one another and it'll be manifested in peace that comes from God. One last explanation. Why is it that God's grace could be expressed or manifested in love? Because if I understand that I can't that I could never be good enough, that it's only because of God's grace, only because of God's grace, that I have hope of seeing my daughter again. It's only because of God's grace that I have hope of eternal life. It's only because of God's grace that I can stand before you and, and be your pastor. It's only because of God's grace that you have hope of eternal life. It's so easy then to remember that you're no better and I'm no better than anybody else in this world. It's God's grace. It's about his gift. It's not about your goodness or your righteousness or your abilities. We're here and we have a future and we have a hope because of the grace of God, because he loves us so much that he didn't set us on fire when we deserved it. He didn't strike us with lightning. He didn't end the world. He loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. And if, you've, if, if you don't get that, if you've never put your faith in the grace of God extended to you through Christ and his suffering on the cross, I would plead with you to don't let a day pass before you say yes to God's gift. It's God's gift to you. Eternal life and, and this, this gift of grace is God's gift to you. And every day that you reject him, every day that you say no to God is one more day outside of a life of his, with his family. And it's one more day that you're taking a chance that you may never spend eternity with him. So if, if you don't know for certain today that you've, made that decision you you you're following christ you've trusted his gift of grace for your eternal life i plead with you to make sure that you do that but the second invitation is for the church folks we have to make a decision and i would i would plead with you before you go through that tragedy 
before you get that phone call or before you reach that age where, or your health is declining, before your spouse is in that car wreck or whatever may come, whatever the tragedy may be, before that happens, make a determination that I'm going to stand on my faith in Christ and trust him. Regardless of what comes tomorrow, I'm going to trust him. Make that decision today that he is trustworthy and I'm going to stand on my faith. Regardless of what the world throws at me, I'm going to stand on my faith and I'm going to stand on God's word. If you'll make that decision now, when the tragedy comes, it'll be much easier to navigate the challenges and the difficulties of that suffering. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.